there, dear listeners. I'm Samantha B, and this is a very special episode of Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. Back in the first season of this podcast, Dr. Jen Gunter, the unofficial gynecologist of Twitter, joined me to talk about everything from menstrual diarrhea to raw placenta meat. Hello? Hello? Are you still there? Okay, good, because she only left us wanting more. And luckily, Dr. Gunter now has a new best-selling book, The Menopause Manifesto, which I got to talk to her about a few weeks ago for the good folks at the Commonwealth Club. And we recorded it just for you. So hop on the table, put the feet in the stirrups, and get ready for the best gyno appointment of your life. I am so excited to speak with Dr. Jen Gunter, an obstetrician, a gynecologist, friend to all the women, a fearless advocate for women's health. Her new book, which is right here on my child's bookcase, The Menopause Manifesto, it's so informative and it's a deeply humorous work to counter the stubborn myths, attitudes, and misunderstandings that society has about menopause. Before we begin, I would like to remind the audience, you are out there, to submit your questions in the chat. Even though I personally have 500 questions to ask Dr. Gunter, you can ask questions too. (laughs) We're going to get to as many of your questions as possible toward the end of the program. And we are recording this live event for my own podcast, Full Release. So feel free to make your questions as fabulous as possible. Because, boy, do I ever love a double dip. Dr. Jen Gunter, welcome. You're here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I know. I'm so excited to talk to you, too. And thank you so much for hosting. Oh, my goodness. It is my deep, deep pleasure. So let's talk about your good news. Your book is already. Tell us. Tell everybody. Well, it hit the New York Times bestseller list first yes. week out. Yay. Ah, that's so great. And was the number one book for all of Canada, number one of all books bestseller. So yeah, I was telling you before we began that I am so not surprised because people really, really want to read this book. I wanted to read this book. In fact, we spoke not too long ago about The Vagina Bible, which was another wonderful book. And you told me about this book coming up and I was so excited. So I'm so happy to be here. We have so much to talk about. I'm 51 years old. So from the moment I heard that this book was coming, boy, I was ready. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's get right into it. Do you recall the first time that you began to like conceptualize menopause. When was that real for you? Even a little bit. Well, the first time I actually just heard of any like concept about it, I think was when I got my own period. And a few days later, because my mother wasn't very observant or maternal, she said, oh, that started. And I said, yeah, I've got it covered. It's okay. And and she said, well, what are you using? And I showed her, you know, the pads with, you know, sticky back on them. And she's like, I've, I've, I, they didn't have those when I had that. I, I'm all done with that. That was the, that was the extent of it. I'm all done with that. You know, she'd used a <laughs> menstrual belt. Right. For those of you who don't know, people are probably like, what? A menstrual belt? Google them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm all done with that. Yeah. I'm all done with that. That was it. That was the extent of it. And I don't believe I'd you know, heard it mentioned really until I got to medical school. I, I mean, I, I just can't remember it being mentioned. 
Right. I mean, I think for a lot of families, it's really a story told in like whispers and knowing looks and things like I'm done with that around the kitchen table. (laughs) Right. Or windows being flung open, you know? Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. My own stepmom used to wear, she wore Bjorn Borg like tennis wristlets and a (laughs) headband when she would walk around New York City. And I was like, what is going on with you? And she was like, I'm hot. Just so hot all the time. Okay. We can get into some more technical stuff. All right. (laughs) You speak in the book about how, because of your intense medical training, obviously, you know a lot about menopause, but when you yourself began to go through it, were there surprises? Were you even surprised by what surprised you? Well, so there weren't really any surprises because I knew what was going to happen. And so I was prepared. So, you know, for example, when I had a regular bleeding or heavy bleeding, I wasn't surprised. But I was. I would say a little bit taken aback by what a hot flush actually felt like, right? right? Because, you know, you can conceptualize what heavy bleeding is like, but it's not like having a fever, you know? So I thought it was going to be kind of like having a fever and it's not, it's this bizarre wave that comes over you. And I found the term hot flash inept. I didn't like hot flushes either. And in fact, it was when I started doing research for the book and I found out women used to call them hot blooms. I was like, that's exactly what it feels like. Right. Yes. That kind of tingling in your toes that just crawls its way up your body and then flies out the top of your head. Yeah. It really does feel like it's coming out of your head. It's so strange. It's so weird. So now actually in the office, I tell women about the word hot blooms and everyone goes, oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's better. That makes a lot of sense. I'm actually always personally surprised by the number of intelligent, educated women in my own social circle who have little to no information about menopause. And then because I'm personally very unafraid to talk about it, I just do a little tiny probe and the floodgates open. You know what I mean? Like once you start the conversation, it's kind of unstoppable. And a lot of people that I know really base their knowledge on that old study from the 90s. They're is so much misinformation out there or lack of information and so much shame. Is this why you wanted to write this book? Absolutely. So when I was on tour for the Vagina Bible, you know, Mm -hmm. in the olden days when we used to do book tours and there'd be an audience and you'd do questions at the end, everybody wanted to talk about menopause every time. And as soon as one woman asked, then others would stand up. And then when people come up and you autograph the book, what did you think about this book on menopause? What did you think about? And it was just question after question. And it's true. I have that same experience. Sometimes women are even don't want to bring it up in the office and you have to kind of probe to kind of get them to talk about it. So there's been so much culture of shame about this just normal phase of life. And I wanted to try to put an end to that. I have found in my own life that many Doctors are can be incurious about the wonderful world of a woman's body. How has the study of female medical topics like menopause changed as more women have entered the medical workforce? How is the knowledge changing? How is it growing? And what will it look like 30 years from now? Well, you know, definitely, you know, for example, when I was training, we were taught that 
you know, menopause was not quite a disease, but not far off it. You know, mm. we, they, they use terms like ovarian failure in lectures mm-hmm. and things like that. So we looked at it through this lens of failure. And I think as we've had greater diversity and obviously it took a while, right? Because all, you know, you think about how few women were originally in medicine, all those women had to get to be the age, you know, to even be menopausal and had to stick it out through mm-hmm. all the, the rigors, you know, cause it's stacked against you just like in everywhere else. So yeah, I think that that diversity of finally getting women in menopause who are actually, you know, being able to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, these symptoms matter because I hear so many women say that they're just brushed off and told it's just part of being a woman. Right, right, right. And, you know, no one ever says that to men. Oh, well, erectile dysfunction, (laughs) that's just part of being a man. (laughs) You'll be fine. You'll get over it. I mean, you won't get over it, but (laughs) you'll learn to live with it. (laughs) That's your new normal, sweetie. (laughs) When I was in my early 20s, I worked on the phones at an erectile dysfunction clinic. And let me tell you, there is no man who accepts that his there's something wrong with his penis. I would, the people would call, they were 99, and they were like, I'm having some problems <laughs> with my penis. I'm like, this seems like it's in the ballpark of reality. And they were like, no, it's fine. I just need a little help with it. Trust me. Um So how do we reform the language around menopause? Because the term itself could use a reworking. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to look at all of the words we use to describe women's bodies because so many of the words are dismissive or diminutive. I mean, so for example, they used to call the changes in the vagina that we see with menopause atrophy. That's just not acceptable. You know, we don't say penile shrinkage. So why would we say vaginal atrophy? Even the word menopause itself, I find problematic because first of all, your last menstrual period is one of the least important things about what's happening to you. And secondly, doesn't it seem a bit odd to sort of describe me like in relation to my last period? When I was 25, we didn't describe me in relation to my first period. And, you know, some of the words we use, for example, the word pedendum in medicine, which describes the outside of the vulva, the Latin root of that is to shame. And the hymen is named after the Greek god of marriage. Mm -hmm. Do you see progress? Do you see, like, how do you change the language? How do you evolve that? So there has been change. So for example, what we used to call atrophy, we now call genitourinary syndrome of menopause. You know, it's not exactly catchy acronym, but it works. It, you know, it's better. And what we used to call premature menopause, we now call primary ovarian insufficiency. So medicine can change. We can do better. It just, it takes a lot of effort because the way we've always done it is the way the patriarchy has always done it. Right. Of course. (laughs) Is there any cultural situation like books, movies, television, which you think have portrayed menopause well? It usually feels like a punchline, but have you seen depictions of menopause that you admire or you think this feels, this is good? Well, I like, uh, is it Frankie and Grace or Grace and Frankie? I can't remember. Oh, right, 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 right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. With Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. I mean, you know, they're obviously years past their final period, but I think that there's some, you know, they they designed a vibrator that was more ergonomic, right? And they actually, you know, their models were not like tiny little vibrators that wouldn't deliver any, you know, any kind of power. Like it was very like realistic or the quest for a good lube, right? For sex, you know, when there was a whole storyline about Frankie with her yams and and the the lube and all that. So I think they did a great job. And and I liked how Grace was married to a man younger than her. Right, right. 
Oh my God, this is so interesting. Okay, we have to take a quick break though, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Before we started this conversation, you had a bottle. You were gonna do you were gonna do a show and tell. So can you show can, yeah. can you show us what is behind you? Sure. So when I was researching the book, something someone said to me, and I can't remember when, I can't remember if it was a tweet or if it was at a book tour, said there was no culture of menopause. Like there was just, she felt lonely. And so that's why I really took this deep dive into the history behind the word, the, you know, the evolution of the medicine. And I also looked at some of the older therapies and it's amazing what you can find on Etsy. Let me tell you. Oh, yes. Yes. So when other people were doing other pandemic shopping, I was trolling Etsy for cultural items of menopause. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I have some medication from the 1920s, some Mm. vials. Yeah. And this bottle is Lydia Pinkham's Vegetable Compound, which was a a homebrew recipe from the 1800s containing nothing that could help you. But but it was, you know, it it was sold as it could treat everything. And when it was finally tested, you know, it was, you know, 18% alcohol. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And you were supposed to sip on it on those days when you felt fit for nothing. That sounds right. That sounds right to me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, you know, I wanted to just hold it, you know? Sure. How much respect did you gain for earlier generations of women when you were researching some of these, like, antiquated, you know, cures or treatments? Yeah. Uh, So, you know, the history of menopause in medicine is one of utmost sort of, I would say, derision. So, you know, women were considered inferior to begin with, and you helped yourself get rid of toxic builds up of fluid with menstruation. You know, men were perfect. They didn't have that toxic build, right? Yeah. So, right. But then when you went through menopause, it's not like you elevated to a higher social status. What happened is that stuff you weren't releasing with your menstruation now was accumulating in your body. So that's why you became even more ill. So if a 60-year-old man was working hard and hurt his shoulder, well, it's because he was working hard. But if it was a 60-year-old woman, it was because of her uterus. So all the therapies were designed to release fluid, to make you sweat, to things like that. So, you know, the older therapies, you know, if there were any, they were like vaginal injections of lead, (gasps) arsenic. Yeah. Um, Leeches on the vulva. Oh, just, I'm sorry. I just cramped. Yeah, I know. Right. You're like every, every woman's leg went mm, yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and therapies like that. So I read a lot of journals from like the 1920s. Cause again, everything's online and these stories of these women coming in suffering and, and people having very little to offer them. Cause this was just the beginning of understanding anything about hormones. And so many of these women actually had had radiation therapy to their pelvis for pelvic pain. And so they were left with early severe menopause. And so the ability to sort of mass produce hormones really, I think, alleviated a lot of suffering. How early do you think that we should start educating young people about menopause? Um, Middle school? Middle school. It's not really, we have so many battles over sex education (laughs) curriculum. I can't imagine the battle if you try to add menopause (laughs) into the order of the day. But it feels valuable to me. Right. I do wonder if, you know, I'm very inclined actually to take your book and give it to my husband because even though I talk about it constantly, I do think he 
and tries to tune me out a little bit. I wonder if a lot of people feel the same way. Like to to have a partner who could kind of share the experience feels very valuable. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean my partner read the book. He feels very, um, you know, very up to date on everything menopause. You know, back to like getting into schools. I mean, we teach sex ed. We frame it with um, stopping pregnancy. That's it. It's very purity culture as opposed to learning how your bodies work. I personally believe if everybody knew what good sex was early, there actually people would might be making different choices, right? People do things because they're curious and they don't know. And, you know, wouldn't it be better for people to know how everything works and how everything works should be the full scope of your life. But you know, if we can't get it into middle school, which I'm still not going to stop on that mission. No, um, listen, I'll join you in that mission. <laughs> but I think everybody should know. I mean, I think we do a bad job of teaching biology in general. But I think anybody who partners with anybody who's going through menopause could really learn about it. If your mom's going through it, your sister, your wife, your cousin, you know, your partner, anybody could learn. Because even if you're not going through menopause yourself, maybe you should learn about why those jokes could be so hurtful to somebody. Right. I think part of the problem, I mean, you know, a lot of, as with a lot of things, uh, people with low information have many large scale opinions about things such as menopause. Okay. And you have said that you expect a lot of hate mail for your chapter on supplements. Why is that? Well, you know, I'm telling the truth and supplements make a lot of people a lot of money. And for a lot of people, it's like a religion, you know? And what's fascinating to me about this belief in supplements, so, so many people who promote supplements say, oh, well, look at all the harms in medicine. Look how medicine has harmed people. And yeah, so let's look at how medicine has harmed people. Oh, how did thalidomide harm people? Oh, it harmed people by not being studied adequately and getting out there. How did DES harm people? Oh, by not being studied adequately and getting out there. Hmm, are we studying supplements adequately? No. No, we're not. So, you know, when you look at it from that framework, if you're expecting something to have a physical effect in your body, it's got an active ingredient. And the assumption should not be that that is a beneficial active ingredient. And so, yeah, there's, it's a lot of people making a lot of money off of it. And if your product is so great and so safe, you should go out and prove it. Don't women deserve that? Don't women deserve the studies to prove it's safe and effective? Right. Why do you think that information from that study in the 90s is so pervasive even today? Because I, you know, I talk to a lot of people who still kind of quote that information and they're hearing it from their own doctors. And that is alarming to me. Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately in medicine, it can take 10 to 20 years from something that's studied to make it into sort of the office, which is not acceptable, but just so you kind of know how long it takes. You know, Cancer headlines are super scary and they scare doctors as well. And the headlines from the Women's Health Initiative in 2002 were just ridiculous. And it was just, you know, everybody was frightened. Then the lawyers come out and, oh, have you taken menopausal hormone therapy? Contact us. Do you have, you know, so it's this whole sort of cycle of just completely spreading the misinformation. It's like when there's an error in a newspaper, right? They print the retraction on the fifth page. So all the studies that have come out now, putting those risks in perspective, explaining the benefits of menopausal hormone therapy and the risks when they are there, those things don't appear on the front page. Fear sells and fear sticks with us. And, you know, people are still more afraid of breast cancer than they are of heart disease, even though heart disease is the number one killer of women. And it doesn't mean people shouldn't be concerned about breast cancer, but 
the thing that's killing more women doesn't seem to get very much attention. Right, right. No solution is ever a one-size-fits-all. How do we ensure that the research being done and the products being offered don't just cater to one specific white woman? <laughs> yeah. Well, now that, you know, now we have, you know, rules that, that studies have to include, they have to have a diversity. You know, we're seeing more and more studies like that. For example, the study of women's health across the nation, the SWAN, uh, which I reference a lot, you know, has a quite a diverse group of women. But even then, you know, if you enroll Asian women, that's still a huge grouping of different people, right? So if you enroll Hispanic people, that's still a huge grouping of different people. And so obviously we need more and more data so we can refine things. And I think we're moving in that direction, but we clearly need to keep moving in that direction. What would you say are the most pervasive myths that come up when people speak to you about menopause? Like you must get the same three questions pretty much every time you hit the road. What are (laughs) those? Have I asked those three questions? Probably. Well, one is about, you know, isn't menopausal hormone therapy risky? And, you know, I always start with that and I say, well, you know, driving your car has risks, right? But you decide that there are benefits with it as well. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I say there, you know, there is a very low risk of breast cancer and some other things, but when transdermal therapy, you know, the risk is actually incredibly low. And for three or four years, the risk is essentially zero. It's about as low risk as you can get. Um, And, you know, risk needs to be put in perspective and you have to decide what it's doing for you. And as long as it's helping you, then that low risk may be something you can tolerate. You know, so people, people have sort of been brought up to think that menopausal hormone therapy is going to cause breast cancer for like 40% of people who take it, as opposed to six per 10,000 women per year, right? And that mortality isn't increased taking it. So there's that. So I think MHT is the biggest, that was the biggest thing. The second is that there's no good treatments. Oh, well, I, there's just no good treatments. I'm like, well, actually there are quite a few. You probably just haven't been offered them or offered them in a way that you could hear right? Right. So there's, there's that. When you say that, what, what do you mean? Well, so for example, with the risks about MHT, so, oh, you could take MHT. Oh, doesn't that cause cancer? Okay. Well, let's move on to the next thing. So as opposed to the doctor stopping and saying, well, let's talk about that. Or may say antidepressants. Oh, I don't want those. I heard, I heard those are dangerous. Well, let's talk about what do you mean by what have you heard? You know, so, so actually listening to what the person is worried about and then actually answering the question. So I think a lot of things, people just say, oh, I don't want that because they've, they, maybe they heard a bad thing about it from someone, but you know, they also deserve to hear the information. So I think that's a big thing. And then the third thing is that it's all over like that everything's just like done. And it's like, no, I mean, there's so many women doing so many amazing things over the age of 50. This is a phase of life. This is not pre-death. Right. (laughs) That's good to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Here's a good question that came up in the chat and I'm going to ask it, even though we're not technically at that section, because it's, it's important. Do you have advice for people on how to speak up when you feel like your doctor isn't taking your pain or your symptoms seriously enough? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is definitely a challenge and you shouldn't feel like that in the office, but 
when that happens, I think that it's important to say, you know, if you feel comfortable, you know, uh, well, I don't think you heard me. And this, this is what's really bothering me. And are you telling me there are no treatments or are you telling me, you know, so to, to rephrase it. And I think that if you can't get help from that person, if, if that doctor's not gelling with you, then unfortunately you probably do need to find another provider. And it shouldn't be like that. The onus shouldn't be on the person. I absolutely agree with that. But you also have to say, well, if you have this problem, what's the fastest way to get the help that you need? I think also it's very useful to know the guidelines for therapy, if you can, before you go to the office, right? So you have an idea if what you're being told is actually in line with the guidelines, right? So for example, you could use my book as a reference for menopause or the North American Menopause Society, because if you go in and you hear something that's totally different, you know, you might say, well, you know, maybe this isn't the provider for me anyway, because I want standard of care. How can you tell the difference between memory loss that is a natural part of aging and the menopause transition and something that might be a sign of something potentially more serious? That's a great question. A lot of women experience something called brain fog during their menopause transition where they like can't remember the keys or they're just, you know, not unlike a lot of people say when they have mommy brain, right? Sure. When you walk into a room and you just go, well, I knew I came in here for a purpose. I like <laughs> cannot find it. Mm-hmm. Or I came to the grocery store and I only needed one item and no idea what that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why I didn't write a list because it was only one item. Yeah. So brain fog is something that happens and is normal. It's worrying, but it's not worrisome and it's temporary. So I think if anyone has symptoms where they're concerned that they should be seen, because there's a lot of different things that can cause those symptoms. So for example, you could have depression and depression can manifest as brain fog. And so you want to be screened for depression. If you're not sleeping well, you know what? Sleep apnea increases both with age and after menopause. That could affect how your brain is functioning. So you might need to be screened for that. If your memory loss is progressive, getting worse, then there are screening tools that your doctor can do for, you know, concerning aspects of memory loss and then refer you if appropriate. And so there are screening tools, questions, and an appropriate workup. You talk about how it can be disempowering and, of course, isolating to think that a weird body thing is unique to them, not knowing that millions of other women are experiencing it too at the same time. Is this a case where something like social media or Facebook has actually done something good? You know, are you seeing women find each other to talk about these things in in places like Facebook groups? Yes, but there's also a flip side to that because a lot of these groups do kind of get I mean, infiltrated, if you will, by people with agendas. And so it can be really tricky. Some people really try to keep their groups sort of kind of clean, if you will, and are really curating who's a member and others aren't. But yeah, I think all the time I'm hearing more and more where people, they're looking up problems with their menstruation and they find out, wow, you know what? I read this article in the New York Times and written by Jen Gunter and menstrual diarrhea is actually a thing. Oh my God, I know about it. And then they go and tell everybody on their Instagram page. And then all of a sudden, you know, people actually know now. So yeah, I think it's still happening, but it's also amazing to me how pervasive it is, this inability to talk about our bodies. That even now with all these anonymous ways that you can talk, that people still don't know. You know, I feel like I've been talking about menstrual diarrhea nonstop for like five years (laughs) because I want everybody to know about it. Because that was something I had as a teen. And I was like, okay, I just had, guess I have a weird colon problem. And then in medical school, I was like, oh, okay. Oh my God, I'm not the only one. Yeah. Is this why you started Body Stuff? 
Can you tell us about Body Stuff? Yeah. So Body Stuff is my new podcast with the TED Audio Collective, and it is kind of medical school Jen Gunter style. So my whole belief is the reason why people fall victim to supplements or online misinformation is because we're not teaching people enough about how their bodies work. For example, to understand that eight glasses of water a day is a myth, if you knew how your kidneys work and your thirst mechanism worked, maybe you'd be less inclined to believe that. And if you understood the forces behind the lies about water, maybe that would be helpful too. So each episode is a different organ system with also some social background or marketing background or anthropology background about why we might hold some of those beliefs. Amazing. Why do you think so many women hate the word? Moist. I'm sorry. That's a joke. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Can I answer it? I yes. really do. Oh, yes, please. I'm on the anti moist crusade as well, right? <laughs> moist. Moist. Actually, I believe I've no, I've absolutely no data for this, but that's how they looked at women's bodies thousands of years ago. We were overly moist, not just the vaginas, but our cells, everything about us. We were too moist. We were walking defective plumbing. Just thickened like a mango that's too ripe that fell on the ground and split open. Just a mess. (laughs) Men had perfect plumbing. They could manage their their body's Mm -hmm. moisture and we couldn't. So I, I think it's sort of like historically, like generationally, like every woman has sort of since the beginning of time been told she was like overly moist. That's why all these <laughs> therapies were like drying. They gave all these like drying therapies or right. sweating. So they would give sudorifics, things to make you sweat. So when people had hot flushes, they were given treatments to make them sweat because they needed to get the moisture out. Can you imagine that? You're already like stripping your clothes off and now you're taking this nasty, like whatever middle ages treatment to make you sweat. Oh God. Oh God. Okay. You acknowledge that it's surprising that you dedicate a chapter to primary ovarian insufficiency, even though only 1% of women suffer from it. What are some other things that not enough people are talking about that you might not have had room for in your book? I think I would have liked to talk a little bit more about some more therapies to go into more detail about like how to access care, how to actually make it work more of the, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy exercises, you know, sort of in-depth things like that. I wish I talked more actually about like hair and skin, but you know, I can only, only do so much, you know, at some point you kind of have to limit, limit things. Um, I wish I could have gone into more of some of the background as well. And, you know, I I wish we had more data about menopause across the gender spectrum. Um, There just, it just doesn't exist. There's just very little information. So it's very hard to put things in that where the, the data doesn't exist. Is there more research being done? You know, right now, every single study really enrolls people, you know, who are assigned, you know, women at birth and have ovaries. And so, you know, so, so there's very, really very little data to sort of inform uh, trans men who, you know, are going through menopause and how to, how to manage that. And so I wish there was more data there. So I would have been able to, to tackle that. I got to squeeze in another quick break here. We are back. Can you tell us a little bit about SWAN or the study of women's health across the nation? Are these women still being followed? How helpful has this study been? 
Yeah. So this is a massive longitudinal study that started in the 90s and enrolled women from all across the United States and really had this effort to be, you know, have a diversity in it. And these women write questionnaires every year. There's blood drawn, there's brain scans done, there's imaging studies to look at fat deposition. And it's just brought this like wealth of data about just like what happens. And obviously some of these studies wouldn't have been possible in the 70s and 80s when you have the imaging data, right? We didn't have, you know, the hormone tests now are also so advanced that we can detect levels, you know, we, we couldn't detect in the 80s. And so, yeah, it's just giving us this wealth of data of what menopause looks like in all the different organ systems. And um, it's really, the, I think there's more than 500 papers now have come out from it. So oh, it's wow. one of these amazing studies. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit of what you think about femtech? Do you think that female entrepreneurs and developers actually could make something helpful to women? You know, it's really hard to say because I get sent a lot of pitches and I have yet to see one that would be beneficial. Mm. And I, I don't necessarily question motives, but I question the mechanism because what sounds great to a board that you're raising money from doesn't necessarily pan out when you study it, right? So it's this idea that you're going to take something straight to market um, without having data and studies. So that's the problem, right? You know, are you going to sell it as a wellness product without studying it? Okay. Versus are you going to do the 10 years of research and work that it takes to make it FDA approved? So, so we know, so we can say it's safe. So, so that's kind of a tricky thing to, to see. You know, you, you see people coming up with all these ideas, but you're like, oh, so tell me about your lab data. And then, you know, then, then you never get a follow-up. So who knows? I'm always open to more ideas and ingenuity. I just, you know, don't want something to be like the next Theranos or whatever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> How encouraged are you by more public embrace of body positivity among younger generations of women? Because I feel like this will be very game-changing in the next yeah. 20 years or so. I totally agree. I think that this idea that you can finally see people of all sizes and shapes, you know, reflected back to you in images is so empowering. And obviously there's still a long way to go. But you think back to, you know, the 80s, you know, a size two was basically overweight, right? Like the models were so thin. I mean, you could cut yourself on people's cheekbones. And, you know, I was a, a size, I think, whatever, 13 in the junior size, right? And they never had that. I mean, like I was too big to fit anything. And, and, and it was just, there was just nothing cut for you. And this idea that now there are clothing lines that are embracing all sizes. And, and you can see that. I think that's wonderful and amazing. And, you know, we all deserve to see ourselves reflected back in all the images. Mm -hmm. I have some great questions coming through and I actually really want to get to them because I feel like these people really want answers to their questions. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to take a few questions here from the chat. Does MHT increase the risk of developing osteoporosis? Does MHT increase the risk? Mm -hmm. No, it reduces the risk of osteoporosis. Yeah. Mm. So estrogen plus, um, and you need to take a progestin or progesterone if you um, have a uterus. But no, um, estrogen is very protective for the bones. Okay. Well, that's good. That's a good answer to a good question. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I'm on it, you know? So right. I'm on MHT because I have a very strong family history of osteoporosis. And so preventing osteoporosis was super important for me. Great. Could you talk a little bit about menopause and mental health? Yeah. 
so many women, you know, can have a, a triggering of depression during their menopause transition. And if you think about that, not only are there all these hormonal changes, but for many people, they might be working a job as well as trying to deal with menopause symptoms, as well as, you know, during the pandemic, helping your kids schooling from home and working sure. from home. So you have all these added pressures and stresses. And a lot of times I think women who have depression that's triggered during the menopause transition are really just brushed off as, oh, that's just your hormones. Well, and it may be partly your hormones, but that also doesn't mean that you don't deserve to be treated. Right. And so I think that we don't have enough services to offer. You know, mental health in this country is is really not something that is addressed well. And even when there are amazing options, it's really hard for people to get a provider. Right. So you have to acknowledge like all these barriers as well. So I think that many women do struggle and are brushed off. And I actually think that's how a lot of people end up with, you know, so-called alternative providers who offer them sort of things that can't possibly, you know, treat them, but at least they're getting listened to. Do you find that when people come to you looking for help, they've come at such a desperate stage of confusion and they just don't understand what's going on with their bodies and their moods are just, I mean, I can only speak for myself when I was in perimenopause, my moods would swing so hard that I just, it was like, it was like being hit by a freight train in the middle of the day. (laughs) And it's a confusing, you know, it it was a very confusing time. And I think I probably would have crawled across glass to get to my doctor And she was like, oh, this is very normal. And I was like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) I mean, for one, so acknowledging that it can happen can be really helpful. But also that, you know, there are things that can be done. I mean, if you're really suffering, you know, first of all, again, getting screened for depression to make sure that's not a cofactor, because if that's untreated, that can be a problem. And if it's mild depression, I mean, she may be helpful for that, Mm -hmm. but you may also need, uh, you know, other treatments for depression, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or medications, depending on, you know, especially because things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy can take a while to work. Right. You know, medications can work faster. And so sometimes that can be helpful as a bridge for people. So just making sure there's a full spectrum open and also, you know, just even the ability to talk about it, I think is helpful to people. Right. Can you discuss sleep disruption related to hormone changes of menopause and how 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 it impacts women and how long it lasts? This person wants to know when they're going to sleep properly again which I completely understand. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of Boy. women report sleep disturbances yes. and many times it's related to hot flushes at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a possibility and getting, you know, thinking about a trial of MHD to see if it makes it better if it's related to hot flushes. But it's also important to be screened for the things that can contribute to sleep disturbance. And so again, depression, sleep apnea, you know, it's not uncommon that that can also develop and that, you know, you're going to be tired from that. And then, you know, looking at stress and other things and there are sleep clinics you know, where people have, you know, really great programs. And I, you know, keep getting back to cognitive behavioral therapy, but CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is actually really effective. Mm. Um, even then, you know, doing all these things, sleep can sometimes deteriorate with age. And so if people are really suffering, again, a sleep clinic, there are people who are experts, they've done their fellowship in sleep medicine, you right. know, you know, so they're super smart people who know a lot about it. Here's a very interesting question. When unpredictability around menopause is the only guarantee how can women best prepare for rather than worry about their future? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. So knowledge, I think knowing about the full spectrum 
right? So you think about menopause as a trip. And if you're just told, okay, out the door, there you go, have fun. And you have no idea, is there going to be a dragon? Is there going to be a cliff or, or not? Like who knows? Once you start having points on the map, it's far less disorienting. And when you know that, that, okay, well, this happened, this was an obstacle, I was expecting it or not. So I just, I really believe knowing everything that could potentially happen and being informed about the options is really the best way to approach it. So it's kind of like you read everything about the guidebook and, you know, if you didn't hit all the sites, that's okay. (laughs) You didn't hit the world's largest ball of twine, but you know that it's there looking gorgeous. Another time. <laughs> or the the world's biggest catfish in Selkirk, Manitoba. <laughs> oh, that must be a gorgeous sight. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's right next to the McDonald's. Fantastic. <laughs> Did the political climate surrounding women's health affect any choices related to this book? You know, probably not. Um, I think, uh, I think that I, there there probably wasn't too much of that involved. I think that informs everything else. I think, although I do have to say the political climate just pushed me really to get more information out there because, you know, the more barriers exist because of the government, the more people need to know so they can advocate. You know, probably more actually the pandemic in general, you know, this, oh my gosh, so if people can't get into the doctor or they're doing visits virtually, how can that gap be bridged? You know, how can I, you know, how, so I think that maybe even had more of an impact. There's another really good question here. Okay. Is there a point when menopause is over and things go back to normal or it subsides? Some people have, most people actually have their worst symptoms during the menopause transition, which is that time of hormonal chaos. And that's just like puberty in reverse. So some months your estrogen levels will be super high, some months can be super low, some months no progesterone, some months maybe even a little bit more. And so, you know, those are the things that can produce the mood swings or the brain fog or, you know, some of the worst hot flushes for some people. But over time, things do settle. You come to a new normal. And for most people with time, you know, the brain fog settles out. For most people with time, you know, if you have hot flushes, medications can be really helpful. They may not take them away completely, but they can improve things by 75, 80%. And everything does reach that new normal. And, you know, for many people, it's a really great time. I mean, I love not having my period. Right. I love not having menstrual diarrhea, I got to say. I love being able to have sex um, and not having to worry about getting pregnant. Right, right. I didn't love the onset of zits. I didn't love that part of puberty coming back. I know, right? That was unfair. I wish I'd covered that more in the book, actually. I wish I'd talked more about like acne and sort of all these like acne joint pain, these things that aren't necessarily treated with hormones, but definitely exist. (laughs) And yeah, no, I had menopausal acne and that's the beauty of retinoic acid because it treats acne and wrinkles. Mm. Oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah. That's something I wished I'd started when I was 40 um, (laughs) to sort of, you know, prevent the menopausal acne and keep the collagen all nice. Oh yeah. Well, your skin looks great. That's the next book. It's your book on skin and hair health. (laughs) This is all courtesy of Neutrogena Hyaluronic Acid. Perfect. I love it. Let's talk about just more generally women's health. How infuriating has it been for you to see Republicans take a my body, my choice stance on the COVID vaccine and not see an ounce of irony in that? Yeah, that's like, let me have a moment to like just... just, Yeah, because they don't care. 
they just say whatever. They don't actually care about abortion, I believe. Most of them, they care about sure. votes and abortion laws get them votes. Right. They're, you know, obviously they're hypocritical. If they cared about life, you know, we would have, everybody would have been wearing masks. If they cared about life, you know, they would, they wouldn't be spouting these lies about vaccines or things like that. So yeah. And it's, it's just shocking that people don't see that hypocrisy. Right. Well, what happens when all the female health centers are run out of a state and women don't feel they have a doctor who is invested in helping them and listening to them? What yeah, do we do? It's a real problem. Yeah. So in states like, you know, if if Texas ends up without anybody able to perform abortions, yes. you know, people are going to try to get abortion pills by mail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's very safe, um, you know, when, you know, prescribed by someone who can ask the right questions, you're very safe. But are those women going to get prosecuted? Right. You know, what what's going to happen to them? And then the fallout when those centers don't exist where women were getting abortion care, well, you know what, then there's going to be fewer medical centers in those areas because people who provide abortion services don't just, you know, Planned Parenthood doesn't just do abortions. They offer lots of right. other care. Yes. And then of course, when people have complications in pregnancy, they're going to die. You know, if you're 16 weeks with ruptured membranes and you've got a fetal heartbeat and chorioamnionitis and sepsis, who's going to decide that you're sick enough to need the abortion? Is the governor going to decide? Is the person right. who wrote the law going to decide? Is the hospital going to even let you do the procedure? I mean, that's how Savita Halaponovar died in Ireland. Right. Okay. Here's a good question here. It's a broader question. It covers some of your other work. You are notorious for your war on wellness. How can the wellness industry realign itself with science and what would that course correction look like? Great question. I think that the supplement industry is what requires the overhaul because wellness makes money off of supplements. Right. And I think supplements should be treated like pharmaceuticals. I think that they should be FDA approved. They should have the same quality control as a pharmaceutical. I mean, supplements are the number one cause of medication-induced liver failure, right? Like these things aren't benign. And I think if people actually had to prove something worked, we'd see all of the downstream ramifications of that. We'd see things improve dramatically. I sadly think that, you know, regulation of supplements is probably the biggest way because people make so much money off of that. Doctors Mm -hmm. have their own branded supplements. There's all kinds of people getting into the business because it makes them money. Right. You know, a lot of really famous podcasters have their own line of beet supplements. You got to get in there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> beat supplements. Beat related things. I don't understand. Okay. Well, the f- a follow-up question is, has the industry taken any steps since you began your work? Oh, I don't really think so. Mm. You know, there's all kinds of talk. Like for example, you know, in 2020, the FDA had a big commission on compounded hormones, which are really largely unsafe. I would never take them myself. And, you know, there's all kinds of issues with them. Compounding estrogen, progesterone is actually really challenging. These aren't easy compoundable substances. When these products are tested, they often contain too much or too little hormone or it's not absorbed. And there were all kinds of massive recommendations about what kind of regulation should happen, how this, and basically it was really largely left to just self-governance, you know? So they had this beautiful report filled with all kinds of data, 160 pages or something like that. It's massive. I read the whole thing for my book and nothing's happened. The whole framework's there. Right. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how to, how to make those wheels turn. I actually wish I did. We have, I think everyone in this recording has watched you hold Instagram influencers and companies hawking their products accountable. Do you sometimes just love 
teaching them a lesson. Just come on. How much is it a rush? I want to start doing it. It looks so fun. You make it look really fun. (laughs) Well, you know, it's enraging. It's very like, I do things out of like righteous indignation. And I get so upset because, you know, then I'll, you know, I'll take some company on, for example, for, you know, their half truths, you know, everything's like just obfuscated a little bit. And, And they're like, you know, they, sometimes they clap back and I'm like, okay, well, show me your study. Right. Show me your study. Show it to me. Oh, you don't have it right. And, you know, these companies, you know, they just are assuming that I'm going to go away. Like, for example, you know, Vagisil, you know, it doesn't have to be like a scammy supplement. I mean, Vagisil came out with a teen cleaning line for teen vulvas and they use the word vagina. So they don't even use the right term, you know, they're because your vagina needs a glow up. Isn't that just the most awful thing to say to a 12-year-old? Like, your vagina needs a glow up. Awful. I honestly did not know that. My jaw is on the floor. That's horrifying. Right. Did they they course correct after that? Did they retract that? Nope. No. No. No, I mean, I made it so, and several other OBGYNs got on board as well. So wow. basically their their Instagram is unworkable for them. So they're probably not going to be able to get influencers, but they're still on the shelves in Target, in Walmart. So that means Target and wow. Walmart think teen vaginas need a glow up too. Those products are associated with vaginal vulvar irritation, vaginal yeah. problems, increased incidence of urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're on the shelves, Walgreens, CVS, you know, sure. whatever. Your teen vagina needs a glow up. Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. Okay. Glow up, throw up. All right. Yeah. Here's a question that probably also everyone wants the answer to. Can you talk about sex drive during and after menopause? I think people really fear this. They are worried. This is a worry. Yeah. So it does happen for some people. Mm -hmm. Some people do have a decrease in their sex drive, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't happen for everyone. And I would say that it's certainly not the majority, but it can happen. And if it does happen, you know, first of all, we have to get back to sort of these same basics that I've been talking about, like getting screened for depression, making sure you're sleeping okay. Because you know what? If you're waking up 30 times at night, drenched in sweat, and you're so hot, you don't want someone to touch you. Like you're like, get your skin off me. I'm so hot. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have to look at all these other factors first. And also look at the length of time in the relationship. You know, people have this misconception that desire doesn't require effort, you know, that it should, we should just be hot and horny all the time. Right. But, you know, relationships have highs and lows and there are many things that um, have been shown to, um, to improve, you know, libido and sex. The, the book I recommend for everybody is by Dr. Lori Brado and it's called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. Mm. And she's really one of the leading experts on desire and libido. Fantastic book. And for some people, drop in libido can be related to vaginal discomfort. And obviously if it hurts, you don't want to do it. So there's great treatment for that. And so you want to have sort of all your, I guess, like ducks in a row, you want to have your vagina treated, you want to make sure everything else is okay, and then kind of reassess libido at that point. I do think there's an extreme amount of shame around the topic of vaginal dryness, to be honest. I think it's the one thing that almost nobody wants to talk about out loud. Yeah, I know. And that's so weird, right? Because you see ads for erectile dysfunction on Sunday television, Mm -hmm. right? In between like sports shows. And yeah, so what? So your, you know, your vagina can absolutely get dry, get genitourinary syndrome and menopause. And there's amazing treatments out there. They're Mm -hmm. really effective. And it's really, it's really sad because I see a lot of people who won't use the treatments because they've probably not been explained to them in a way, or they get upset that they have to use it long-term. 
And, you know, it's like, yeah, that is kind of a bummer. I wish there was a treatment I could give you just Mm -hmm. a one-time thing, but you know, I'm also going to have to wear glasses forever because of my age related changes. Mm. You know, sometimes you have to accept that some treatments are ongoing, but the fact that there's so many different options, there's a ring, you can just put it in your vagina and change it every three months. Like, like how, how more sort of like get up and go, you know, is that there's creams for people who prefer that there's lower dose tablets and suppositories. Mm -hmm. So there really is a range of treatments. Oh, this has just been this has just been a wonderful conversation. I'm going to ask if anybody has any more questions, and then we are going to wrap it up. I okay. Here's one last question from our audience, and thank you for being a great audience. I hope you have enjoyed this chat as much as I have enjoyed it. Oh boy. Okay. What are your words of wisdom for women of all ages who struggle to understand themselves, given the gaps in our education? This is a tender question. This is a good finisher. It's a great question. What a great audience. Wow. Questions they've had. Yes. I think that I'd like people to reflect on almost all the messaging that you've received about your body from society in large is probably inaccurate. You know, that everything has been viewed through this patriarchal gaze of your body being broken or not right or ovarian failure and to, to not think of yourself in those terms. I think that given the gaps that educating yourself and trying to find sources that are quality sources, but when you find something that's good, make it your mission to pass it on to two people. Mm -hmm. You know, so often sort of we struggle with something and then we don't think about, well, wow, what we learned from our struggle, maybe we could help somebody else not have to struggle that way. Right. So, you know, do what you can to kind of try to lift up two other people who, you know, maybe they're friends, maybe they're just people you know casually to just to pass on the information, to talk about your body in a way that's not shameful. Because even just the ability to talk about what's happening to your body, it seems revolutionary. It shouldn't be. But if you're willing, if if you've taken that step, help two other people to take that step. And buy this book and pass it along to two friends. <laughs> Encourage your two friends to buy the book. Exactly. It's an incredible book. Thank you to this audience for all of your great questions. Thank you so much to Dr. Jen Gunter for joining me today. We want to remind everyone to go out and pick up a copy of Dr. Jen's book, The Menopause Manifesto, Own Your Health with Facts and Feminism at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Samantha B. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Full Release in Apple Podcasts. And keep sending your questions to fullrelease at sambi.com. They might even be featured in a future episode. And if you need even more Sambi, there's always additional Full Release on Stitcher Premium. And we'll see you next Tuesday for another Full Release. This podcast is brought to you by Airwolf and TBS and was produced by Adam Howard and Svea Baron-Reinstein with IT and technical production provided by Hightech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. And a very special thanks to the Commonwealth Club and Inforum for sharing this conversation with our audience.